Hello and welcome to Borough Talks, which is Borough Market's season of events and a podcast on food and food culture. I'm Angela Clutton. I am the host of Borough Talks and you're about to listen to the recording of an event that was done in May 2021 when the idea of international travel was, to say the least, a little uncertain. So I sat down over Zoom with Russell Norman, Roberta Muir and Yasmin Khan to think about the different ways that food can offer such a unique insight into communities and cultures all over the world. I hope very much that you enjoy it. Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to Borough Talks, which is Borough Markets uh, events and podcast series on food and food culture. I'm Angela Clutton, and it is my complete joy to be the host of Borough Talks. So I think we should ask our illustrious, well-travelled panel to um, make themselves known. So Roberta, Russell, Yasmin, hello, hello. 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 Oh, just got Yasmin to come. Everyone. Hi, guys. Really, really lovely to see you all. Thank you so much for joining us at various times of day. Um, I'm going to do some little biogs and intros. And as we go through, you can uh, tell us where you are because you're all in um, completely different places, which is obviously very fitting for what we're doing today. Um, so going to kick off with uh, Yasmin Khan, author, broadcaster, um, who describes her writing as sitting at the intersection of food, travel and politics. A formerly human rights campaigner, um, has written three critically acclaimed cookbooks most recently, and I'm going to give a big shout out for this because it's only recently been published, most recently Ripe Fix, um, which centres on the Eastern Mediterranean and is completely typical of Yasmin's immersive work in food and travel. So hugely looking forward to all that you have to say, Yasmin. Um, where are you at the moment? I'm in London, just uh, at the bottom of Green Lanes. So uh, right in the midst of the Eastern Mediterranean also. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's been really interesting to talk about that and about how food, well, we won't get into it now, but how food you know, travels with people as well. So there's lots to get stuck into. Uh, then we have Roberta Muir joining us, uh, food, travel and lifestyle writer based in Australia, um, specifically right now in Sydney, yeah? Correct. What time very- is it? It's 10 o'clock at night and it's rainy and quite thundery. So we might get some mood music in the background. Yeah, when we were getting set up for this, there was the world's biggest rumble of thunder that came through. It's the, we're, we're storming tonight. It's amazing. Now, normally when we do these at the market, the sound uh, complication or excitement that we have is the railway tracks going over oh. the bridge. So it's kind of fitting that we're going to have you know, some noise coming through as we go. Um, Roberta has only recently um, left her role managing Australia's largest recreational cooking school, the Sydney Seafood School, um, having been there since uh, 1997 until 2021. Author or co-author of five cookbooks, um, including one on Sardinian food and one uh, on uh, the cookbook of Lombardy. So lots of travel things to kind of get into there and then Russell Norman who is in Venice often in Venice but currently in Venice yes yes broadcaster founder of the Polpo restaurant group um excitingly has recently announced new restaurant venture as well which I'm sure we will get into um author of three cookbooks but possibly the one we're going to talk about most today will be um Venice four seasons of home cooking um and I uh was reading in your um, bio, Russell, you're saying that you kind of really immersed yourself in the food culture by taking a flat and just sort of cooking through the year from this flat in Venice. Yeah, I just I just took my lead from my neighbours who were all in their 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, in, in my opinion, there were no better cooks on the planet than grandmothers. <laughs> That's brilliant. So- we're going to 
definitely get into all of that. And I think, you know, one of the things we want to talk about today is how food offers such a unique insight into community and culture. And you know, for so many of us, one of the joys of traveling is you know, discovering uh, culture you know, through, through its food and what that tells you about people, place and time. And obviously, you know, after a COVID impacted year of so little traveling happen, I think we felt it, we wanted to do something which was really looking at the importance of travel in food culture. We're thinking about it in ways of cultural understanding and uh, tourism and the impacts that can have, but also not just about travel and food for pleasure, but also when food travels with people who may be forced to leave their home. And I think that's why this is such a fabulous panel to have together, because I really feel that all your work can kind of weave through all these different threads. Um, but first of all, I'd like us to get stuck into thinking about um, discovery and how food, as I've said, can give insight into community and culture. And Russell, I'd like to come back to you to start that off because I would like to get an idea of your excitement of first arriving in Venice. And, and this may not even be the same time of that first visit, but when you first felt the hooks of Venetian food getting into you. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the food culture of the city came quite a bit later um, th than my uh, initial experience. I, I came here in 1985 as a 18, 19 year old student <clears throat> um, coming to visit a friend. Um, of course, this was this was the era before the internet, the era, be era before Google, the era before mobile phones. So everything that we had. Um, done in order to um, facilitate my visit to Venice had been, you know, on postcards and uh, with postage stamps. Um, and I arrived here with, without having done any research at all. I, I didn't even know that Venice didn't have roads, for example. So I- must have been quite a surprise then. I came, I came by train from Paris, uh, arrived at Santa Lucia station, and my instructions from my friend were to get the number one bus to uh, his apartment. Uh, I came out the stage and I failed at my very first attempt because I couldn't see any buses. Went back into the station, put a few lira into a phone box, called him and said, where are the buses, dude? And he said, they're right outside. There's, there's nothing outside except boats. And he said, the boats are the buses. So this I'm telling you this story because it sort of illustrates the ignorance that I had when I first came to Venice in '85. I, you know, I was it was appalling that you know that I, that I, a sophisticated, intelligent, uh, 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 educated young man, could come to one of the most famous cities in the world and know nothing about it. So it took me a very long time to get over that initial shock, um, and also to get all of the. The, the, I, I guess the typical cultural um, uh, 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 elements of, of Venice out of my system. So one, once I'd been to all the churches and all the galleries and seen all the architecture and so on and so forth, I, I still couldn't get the city out of my system. And it was several years later, I was working in London at the time in, in restaurants. I was a waiter at a restaurant called Joe Allen. Um, so my... My professional life in the UK was in food, but my cultural um, attachment to Venice was initially 
exactly the same as every person that comes here and, and is transfixed by the place. However, after about three or four years of coming here, and I, I you know, I, I, I couldn't get it out of my system, and, and I think I've probably visited Venice between two, three, and 10, 15 times a year over the last 35 years. It's, it's, it's been a complete obsession. It was, it was about five or six years after I'd first um, visited the city that I, start, that I started to realize that there was a food culture and I started to um, uh, tap into that. Um, I think Venice is quite infamous for, you know, for its expensive restaurants and the, the fact that tourists spend a lot of money to, you know, to try and get that, um, that Venetian food experience. But what I discovered was that there were these very small, scruffy backstreet wine bars, which is where the locals ate. Normally standing, uh, drink in one hand, snack in the other, gossiping about the mayor, slagging off the chief of police, rubbing shoulders with, you know, uh, these, are, these are genuine social hubs where, you know, you, you would have actors and writers standing side by side with market traders and taxi drivers. You know, it's a complete um, level playing field of, of social classes, cultures and so on. And it was in these tiny places that, you know, I would enjoy the same snacks that locals were enjoying. And that's when everything sort of came together, I suppose, for me in terms of what Venice means and what the food culture in Venice has meant over the centuries and what it means today. Uh, and um, that, I guess, is what led to my first restaurant, Polpo, in 2009, and to my first cookbook, Polpo, a Venetian cookbook of sorts, in parenthesis. Um, and that's what's kept me coming back, I suppose. It's, you know, it's that, you know, initially it was the sort of <clears throat> the, uh, the mystery and the glamour and the romance, I, I guess, of finding these places that locals would enjoy, which weren't necessarily on the tourist trail. Well, I'm going and, to take that idea, Russell, actually, yeah. and bring Yasmin in, and uh, reverse to in a second on that. I do love this idea that Venice and its food sort of almost snuck up on you. Completely snuck up. It, it, it ambushed me. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I kind of love, but I'm, uh, well, I completely love that. But Yasmin, I'm interested in terms of your work, because I get the impression that when you are doing your travels for your books and maybe otherwise as well you're going more deliberately to discover the food culture is that is that fair it's kind of a bit of everything really first of all Russell I have to say I to my sins I've never been to Venice and I've got your beautiful book and and, and as in I've got Polpo and I really love it um, but that description just there I, I just was immediately while you were talking being like why haven't I gone that sounds amazing it was so evocative and beautiful so thanks for that you've uh, thank you you took me on a little journey there on a, on a Wednesday lunchtime in London um yes yeah, so what what is my travel all about well you know I think we, we all travel in different ways don't we at different times for different things and um uh, from a professional point of view I I didn't come into the food world until my kind of mid thirties, I guess. But in, in, in my early twenties, I traveled extensively because I was um, a human rights campaigner working for nonprofits. Sorry, you can tell I've been doing a lot of American interviews, working for NGOs. <laughs> and, um, uh, and a lot of the focus of my work was around the Middle East and I'm, I'm of um, Iranian and Pakistani heritage. Um, but I guess that, 
that basis of travel has always been there in my life as as a curiosity and and whenever I travel you know food like for many of us although not for everyone I have to say you know food is often that was often the um like the, the grounding element of wherever I, I, I was and wherever I go, because, you know, when you find out about a country's cuisine or when you delve into a country's cuisine, you're not just learning about a, a set of ingredients or a methodology of, of cooking recipes. You know, to explore a country's food culture is to learn about its history, its geography, its landscape, you know, maybe its gender relations in terms of who's cooking, um, its history of migration, its history of empire. You know, for me, I just think, you know, food is such a, I mean, it's such a hugely broad subject that enables us to get a window into, into a place. And um, my three travel cookbooks have focused on three different places or countries, um, but with one kind of unifying th th thread, I guess, which is to try and use food as a way of challenging stereotypes of how we view certain places. So my first book was about Iran, um, the country of my mother's birth, uh, a place, you know, always dominating the headlines, but often for, you know, solely the reasons of its very, very narrow, um, just through the very narrow political lens. So for me, it was very important to travel around the country and share some of the beauty and the culture that I know in Iran, you know, the ancient civilization, whether it's, you know, talking about the incredible Rosewater festivals um, in May, it's around this time of year, you know, Iran was the first country in the world, um, well, roses are indigenous to Iran, it was the first country in the world to um, start the process of distilling them in order to extract their essence to make rose water and then perfume, and you know, taking readers on, on a journey through that, along with the recipes that come from it. Or, or exploring saffron, you know, famously known as the world's most, you know, expensive spice, a real benchmark of, of Persian cuisine. I'm going to flip through the other books really quickly. My second book, uh, my second amount of travel writing was about um, uh, Palestine, very pertinent today, obviously, or this week, as, as we're seeing kind of, um, yeah, horrific attacks by the Israeli authorities on the Palestinian community. Um, and when I was a human rights worker, Israel-Palestine was my beat for several years. So again, I knew the region really well. Whenever I went there, I might be working, but I would be exploring the food culture. And again, what I do in that book is celebrate the indigenous um, bench, yeah, hallmarks of Palestinian cuisine, whether it's, you know, the book is called Zaytun, which means olive in Arabic, um, uh, the quintessential Palestinian ingredient and olive trees are so emblematic within Palestinian culture for their connection to the land and their steadfastness. And Palestinian poetry is written, is littered, is, you know, littered with like references to the olive tree. Uh, so yeah, so in Palestine I did that. And then uh, my third book, Ripe Figs, zooms out a little bit to look at a region. Again, trying to look at broader social and political issues through food. And in this book, I'm looking at Greece, Turkey and Cyprus. Um, an area or three countries whose borders have been as fluid as they've been contested over several thousand millennia. And in the book, I explore what borders and migration mean in the 21st century, because that region has seen the biggest movement of people into Europe since the Second World War in the last six years. But it's also a region that unites around, you know, incredible uh, grilled meat, you know, barbecued over hot coals, you know, delicious uh, smoky aubergine dips you know, uh, again, uh, the abundance of olive oil, the you know, incredible fresh oregano and thyme and these plant-based dishes that, you know, are imbued with the gorgeous red soil of the Mediterranean. So, yeah, I think uh, food just can tell us so much, I think, about 
people and place, but but also ourselves when we when we look at a country through the prism of its food. I think that's absolutely absolutely right. Um, Roberta, I'm just going to bring you in on this because um, I know you've done a couple of books on um, Italian food, but I think probably what we, we, we definitely want to talk about your take on Italian food in terms of travel, but um, thinking particularly about you know, Sydney, where you are and your work at um, the Sydney uh, Seafood Market Sydney. And, and Seafood School, um, interested to sort of get your take on how uh, food and travel are connecting within Sydney and have been connecting over the last few years? Well, I guess we're really lucky in Sydney, as you are in London and in other major cities of the world, in that we can travel without leaving home. Um, you know, the last year has been very interesting for all of us, but I've said to many people, if we're going to be trapped, locked down in, in any city in the world, Sydney's not a bad city to do that in. Um, as in London, you could easily eat 40 different cuisines, one a night for probably 60. You could probably eat a different cuisine every night for two months without repeating yourself. So travel is wonderful and it's it's something that, you know, I look forward to and I'm very myopic when I travel. I travel virtually solely for food. I'm married to a photographer, so our travels take in food and landscape, but the landscape's very much for him and the food's for me. But if I could never leave Sydney again, my taste buds would still take me travelling. And so for people who travel to Sydney, which I think is what um, I'd like to kind of think about, people who travel to Sydney, to what extent does its culinary culture help them, do you feel, get a greater understanding of the way Sydney lives and breathes? Hmm. Well, that's a very interesting question because I think people come to Sydney uh, at least for the first time or come to Australia for the first time wanting Australian food. And as an Australian food writer, I have to say we spend a lot of time trying to work out what Australian food is. Um, people think it's barbecue, but as Yasmin said, barbecue is as Middle Eastern as anything um people think it's kangaroo and emu and um native bush spices um those things are very very marginal as a as a white anglo-saxon culture or as a non-indigenous culture we've never really tapped into indigenous food with a couple of exceptions like macadamia nuts um so I don't know if people are disappointed sometimes when they come to Australia and they don't find an Australian cuisine. Um, obviously, we are famous for our seafood and there's a number of species that are Indigenous to Australia and we have a huge, huge diversity of species, far more than you have in the Northern Hemisphere. So I think seafood is very much part of Australian cuisine. But I hope when travellers come they come with an open mind and realise that what Australian cuisine can teach them is how multicultural Australia is. And because I think that's the thing, isn't it? And I was just about to say that it is the lack, for want of a far better word, um, of Australian food actually a thing that tells you most about what's, you know, exciting and creative culturally. Absolutely. And so you have all the traditional cuisines in Australia and then 
if Australian cuisine is anything, and we sometimes label it modern Australian or mod Oz, it's a very comfortable, natural mixing of cooking techniques and ingredients from different cultures, which don't clash, but which can sit quite well on a plate together in Australia, which you might not find elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, I'd like to just switch the lens slightly and bring you back to your Italian um, work. And then we're going to sort of weave in the other guys as well on this question, which I would like to get into about how tourism travel, and we're not going to just talk about tourism, but for the moment, we'll just stick with this idea of tourism. When, when you have been writing about Sardinia and Lombardy, have you felt that increasing tourism has affected the culinary culture of those places? No. Interesting. But I'm sure it. I'm sure it has. Okay. It was my experience. Um, I I've written both those books with with Italian chefs now resident in Australia. So I went back to Sardinia with Giovanni Pilu, who was born in Sardinia. I went to Lombardia with Alessandro Pavoni, who was born in Lombardy. We visited their homes. We met their families. We met their childhood friends, etc. And um, look, in both places. Both men grew up in smaller regional areas. And so we connected very much with the traditional food of, of those areas. And I didn't see that tourism had diluted that food culture at all. That's interesting. Russell, what's your take on that in terms of Venice? You know, for all the years that you've been visiting, staying, to what degree do you feel that Venice's own culinary culture has been affected for good or not by tourism? It's it's changed really noticeably in the in the time that I've been visiting Venice. So I, I came here first in eighty five, which is what thirty five thirty six years ago. Uh, and, and I think you know my my early visits, the first decade or two, um, you know, I, I I I did what everybody does when they come to Venice. They try to seek out traditional local dishes. Uh, you know, they try to stay with the seasons, eat. Um, the you know the, the the wonderful soft shell crabs that only exist for a very brief moment in spring and in autumn when the temperature of the lagoon changes and their shells turn soft etc etc so and also the you know the wonderful um, artichokes the purple artichokes of the island of Santo Rasmo the first bud of which are known locally as castraore, castrated buds, you know, only appear for two or three weeks every uh, late March, early April. So, you know, these were the moments that, you know, that I rejoiced along with Venetian food fans, I suppose, for many years. But what I've noticed recently, and this is quite interesting, I think, is that, you know, Venice is, it's a city which is, has always had um, societal and environmental problems. People talk about Venice sinking. It's not actually sinking. I think London is sinking faster than Venice, but what is happening is that the tides are rising. <clears throat> there was a miraculous development last year when um, uh, after almost two decades of, uh, of political um, shenanigans, the Mose system, the Moses um, uh, flood barriers, which have been installed along the lagoon edge between the Adriatic Sea and the lagoon were switched on for the first time to test whether they could hold back the tides. And they did. It was, I, I've got goosebumps <laughs> just talking to you about it now. It was, it, was, it was such an emotional moment for, you know, for Venetians and also for me. Um, 
And this, you know, this made a big difference. The, the reason I mention it is because you know Venice has had so many struggles over the over the you know centuries. Its most recent and most real struggle is the fact that its population is dwindling quite alarmingly. There's probably fewer than fifty thousand residents in Venice at the moment. The reason I mention all this, Andrew, is, is because what has happened, and I find this fascinating, is that the youth of Venice, who in the past would traditionally uh, escape to the mainland as quickly as they can, because they could get a car <laughs> and drive around. You know, it's something you just can't do in Venice. These kids are now staying in the city, and the one aspect of their culture and their history and their identity that they can reclaim, and they have reclaimed, is food and drink. And so there's a revolution as we speak at the moment in Venice, and it's a wonderful um, revolution, I, I think. Uh, and it's the, it's the kids, the youth of the city who have thought, okay, the one part of the culture, the one part of Venice's identity that we can reclaim, make our own, and uh, communicate our Venetianness to the rest of the world is in food, restaurants, drink, et cetera, et cetera. So, when I come to Venice now in 2021 and last year and the year before and the year before, and it's only really been happening, I think, for the last seven, eight, possibly 10 years, um, I, I get a sense that the city is, you know, is completely transformed, completely changed. The old guard is still there. There are still great restaurants like Antique Carampane that, that, still, um, that still champion the traditions that go back centuries uh, and are connected to the lagoon and to the uh, the fishermen who you know who who specialise in you know in the bivalves and and the mollusks and the crabs and so on, but there is this new guard which is is absolutely thrilling. I mean, it, you know, to, to me they are they're as you know they're as cool and as godlike as as rock stars. And you see them all over the city. And I you know I I, I would encourage anybody you know when lockdown ends. And you can travel back to the city, just do a little bit of research, a little, you know, a little sort of um, 15, 20 minutes on Google. And you'll find these guys, you'll find these kids and see what they're doing. It's just it's just wonderful. You make it sound very, very exciting. And Yasmin, it, re it, re it really is. And, you know, yeah. it's 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 transformative. I think it's going to make a big difference to um tourism in the city. Well, I hope it's going to make a big difference. You know, the, the problem with Venice is that it needs tourists to survive. And There's I no think that, sorry, Russell, I just got to bring in Yasmin, because I you know your work, Yasmin, I was you know, reading you know, right picks over the last year, week or so, and you know, you're getting under the skin of places and not, it feels, you're operating on a kind of tourist's level, as it were. You're really kind of you're getting in there about what's you know, making these places tick and then in terms of their food and their culture. But some of the places that you talk about in right figs are places which do, and I'm thinking most particularly of Cyprus, are places which you know are big tourist places. I went to Cyprus last year, had a gorgeous time traveling around, you know, being shown amazing people who are doing wonderful, you know, traditional foods. I stayed in a hotel which literally had Pizza Hut menus on every sun lounger. And you know, can you just talk to us a little bit about places like Cyprus, or you know, if you want to pick another example where there's that sort of you know, tension, if it is tension? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that's just the way kind of mass market tourism works doesn't it I mean I think the Greek islands are another classic example um where you know you'd probably think there were only 10 Greek dishes that you would get you know some taramasalata some you know 
uh, calamari, maybe a moussaka. I mean, you know, there's some just iconic things, aren't you, that you just think of and that's it. Whereas just, you know, Greece also has a very ancient food culture, especially, you know, once you get out of the islands, places like Thessaloniki, like the north. And again, these huge um, bridges between... Um, yeah, it's just a bit of a cliche to say east and west, so I'm not going to say that. But again, between uh, continents, I guess. Um, and yeah, all three countries, I think, are huge tourist destinations. And, like, you know, I don't want to bash tourism. As Russell said, you know, tourism, I think, is really important to many of these countries. And, and the celebration of their food culture has also been part of that, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it just also has its limitations, doesn't it? And Cyprus, I think, is a, a classic example because it, I think Cyprus is such an incredible island. Its food culture in particular is um, the result. I mean, pretty much every empire of the last 3000 years has, has, has had a stake in Cyprus at some point, you know, from the, you know, the ancient Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Venetians, the Persians, you know, right through to more recent times with the Ottomans, you know, the British. And, and what you get as a result, again, because of its proximity, you know, it's just north of Egypt, off the African continent, just, I mean, something like 60 nautical miles from like Syria, just south of Turkey. So because of this history of migration, the, the, the food culture of, of Cyprus really is a huge celebration of that. And um, it doesn't take long, I think, to get, get out of that. You know, one of my favorite food experiences in in cyprus which i think again in, in the uk we just associate it with kind of really bad package holidays don't we i think cyprus but one of the best meals i've ever had probably ever on my travels i mean that, that's a big claim but i'm just going to go with it was i remember like coming out of nicosia's um bus station this is only a couple of years ago um in nicosia is the capital and I was really hungry and, you know, the Airbnb wasn't ready for a few hours. And then I just saw that there was like a cafe in the corner of the square that was just incredibly busy and it just had locals in it. Um, so another great, you know, uh, example of why sometimes it's just so good to look up from the guidebook and just see where people who, who look like they're from the region are eating. And, you know, we went in and it was just a really simple cafe um you know hole in the wall man working furiously just you know over a big pot of beans and we just saw that everybody who was there was eating the same thing it was lunchtime and so you know the waitress came over and we just kind of pointed to what other people were having because it seems to seem to be a winner whatever was going on and you know she brought it over for us and it was um it was august and i'm saying this just because of the, the seasonality of this particular dish and it was a, a, a really iconic Cypriot dish, actually, that they eat in, in all sides of the island. And it was, um, you know, braised um, black-eyed peas cooked with, it was a mix of wild local greens uh, because they used a lot of forage greens there. And there's a lot of chard in there. It was quite lemony. And it was just served with like a wedge of village bread, a hunk of raw onion, some beautiful marinated olives, loads of olive oil that, you know, they use as a seasoning in the Eastern Mediterranean. It is like you, you use olive oil, like you use salt, you know, you liberally pour it over everything that you eat just before you eat it. And it was just one of the most, like it was one of the most perfect meals I've ever had. It was incredibly delicious. It was, you know, cheap as chips, you know, and um, you really suddenly got this sense of what this culture was about. Okay, so, you know, and, and what the food was about. And uh, yeah, it was wonderful. So I don't, not tourism, but it's also good just to step away sometimes from what you get recommended in the million guidebooks. Follow yeah. You don't always go to the. I have to say, you'll have a. You won't always have a great meal doing that, but you'll have a proper adventure. <laughs> yeah. A great experience. 
Yeah, yeah. So Rebecca, would you say that um, you know, when encouraging people to you know, discover food through uh, when, on their travels, that sort of immersing in whatever the locals are doing, is that your top tip? Totally. And I think that's why I didn't see that in Sardinia or Lombardia anything had changed because we <clears> were guided by the chef's families and friends and local producers. And I think, you know, if you don't know locals, find some. I've mm. asked taxi drivers, ask shopkeepers. Um, when I'm in a hotel, I go to the concierge and I say, tell me where you eat. In Venice, I had a fabulous little cafe around the hotel that we stayed at. And I said to the concierge, tell me where you eat. And he said, oh, the other tourists like this. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to know what the tourists like. Where do you go on your night off? And he said, really, you want to know? And I did the same thing in Rome. And we were sent to fabulous restaurants where the locals ate. Roberta, I, I'm going to just pick you up on that point. It's, it's something that I've always uh, practised and something I would always advise tourists, no matter where they go in the world, to do. Um, uh, and it's this, I, you know, I, I will book a restaurant maybe for my first night, maybe for my second lunch. Um, but for the rest of the trip, I, I will leave everything open because the way I like to work is to do exactly what you just described. Go to the concierge at the hotel you're staying or find a bartender in a, in a local pub and, and grab him by the collar. You just do whatever you can to find out where the locals are eating. So I don't book the majority of my trip until I arrive. And it's when I arrive that I find the intelligence that you can't get from the internet, you can't get from guidebooks and you can't get from research. You can only get it by being there in the moment. You know, the, the best place to go might change from week to week. The internet, as fast as it is, is sometimes too slow. And you're Not as fast right. as the local grapevine. But the local grapevine is exactly where it, it's at. And yes, you're absolutely right. Just just grab a grab a bartender, grab a concierge, grab a waiter and just find out where they're going. I, I couldn't agree with you more. The challenge, of course, is convincing them that you're genuine and you don't want to yeah. go where the tourists go. Mm. So you have to build the rapport and break down the barriers. Yes, yeah. Mm. Um, and... I suppose um, we're having framing this conversation with Borough Market, and I think it's interesting to think about markets in different places and how they can be a really exciting way of understanding uh, how a city, a region, or even a much smaller community, how that lives and breathes. Um, Roberta, do you want to talk just a little bit about well, Sydney's market, but also your experiences otherwise with markets? Well, Sydney Fish Market. Um, is two things. The true Sydney fish market is the wholesale auction, which most of the general public never see. Everyone thinks Sydney fish market is a bunch of retail shops downstairs, and it's that as well. But between the wholesale market and the retailers, it's very much, again, a microcosm of Sydney. It reflects the multicultural nature of Sydney. Now, pre-COVID, there were a huge amount of Chinese tourists, but most of the fishermen are still Italian. A lot of the shopkeepers are still Greek. They were traditionally. And so you have this Greek, Italian, Asian. A lot of the workers are islanders. There's now Vietnamese and Thai coming in. So Sydney Fish Market is a wonderful representation of the multiculturalness of Sydney. Um, Do you make a beeline for markets when you're 
traveling around? I, I do very much. And and in Venice, um, I'm sure there's there's many great markets, but of course for me it's Rialto. So yes. I'm I'm never in Venice for more than a few hours without heading to Rialto Market. Yeah. And I don't see anything multicultural there. I mean, the beautiful thing about Venice is it's still very Venetian. Um, I loved my visit to Borough Market a few years ago when I was in London. And like Sydney, I felt it was very multicultural. I remember big bubbling pots of paella and all sorts of things going on. Um, I was in Iran several years ago, Yasmin. I went with a Persian girlfriend who lives here in Sydney who actually imports saffron. And mm. we went to see the saffron harvest. I haven't seen the Rose Festival yet, but I have seen the harvest. And, um, yes, pretty much anywhere in the world I go, I think markets are a great place to start to get an overview of the food. Yeah, Yasmin, do you make a beeline for markets when you're traveling to different areas? Oh, we lost Yasmin. She... Oh. No, no, Yasmin may have frozen. So, Russell, I'm going to go to you for that because we'll talk about... Markets. Yeah, yeah, Mar markets. Um, Roberta's absolutely right. Rialto Market. You said, Roberta, you're sure there are other markets in Venice. There are, Actually, there aren't. Oh, <laughs> it's, okay. It's just, it's just Rialto. What you have is you have these sort of satellite vegetable stalls and fishmonger stalls and so on but they're not really markets uh so rialto is where it's where it's at i mean it's huge even even now it's it's you know it's depleted compared to you know my experience of it 10 years ago i'd say there are probably 50 percent of the stalls that there were 10 years ago in the fish market and the same in the in the fruit and veg market and what's what's happening which is a little bit depressing is that um a lot of the markets, the, the fruit and veg market stalls have geared themselves up for tourism. So they're selling dried chilies and spices to take home rather than fresh fruit and veg. Um, but the thing about the thing about the thing about Venice is is that all of the all of the really good restaurants and the great wine bars and bakery, the little snack bars and so on are around the market because historically that's where the food uh, was delivered from the lagoon and from the Adriatic and so on. Uh, and the shortest distance between, between the market and the table is obviously going to be to, to those little places that operate around the hub. And so still to this day, I was, you know, I had breakfast this morning at um, a place called Alarco. And Alarco is run by the Pinto family, Francesco and his son, Matteo. And, what they do every day, like a lot of their you know, uh, their, their um, contemporaries, is they go to the market in the morning and, and it's only then when they see what's arrived, what's landed from the boats that day, it's only then that they can write their menus. And so you, you have this literal um, market-to-table philosophy and tradition that exists even... To this morning i mean you know I'm, I'm talking sort of six hours ago i was there and it was happening and it was it was wonderful it's delicious i think that's the thing those places I mean, when when it's right they can do so energizing for everyone was this yasmin coming back yasmin's back great you're right yes, can i just say oh, russell yeah. that, um it, it's interesting that you mentioned those cafes and bars around yeah. the market because i think one of my no i know one of my most memorable meals in venice was and it might have been called Almerco or something, just off Rialto. It was a tiny little panini with lardo and a tumbler of red wine at about eight o'clock in the morning. So and it's called it's called Almerca. 
Uh, Almerca. It's still Almerca. there. That makes me so there. happy. And I mean, it, it's literally, it's three and a half square meters. Pretty that much. Is, it's an old um, cupboard, um, uh, which has been converted into a bar. Sometimes in the summer, there will be 200 people standing outside in the big campo. And they make, you're absolutely right, they make these little crusty uh, panini. Um, I think they call them sliders uh, now. Yeah, they just have really good quality salumi, a really good quality um, uh, uh, vegetable ingredients. One of my favorites, actually, is they, they make this tuna mayonnaise, um, which is uh, laced with horseradish and chopped up um, Treviso Tardivo Radicchio. It's one of the best flavor combinations that I know. <laughs> I'm just going to remind our audience that um, they can ask questions. We are starting to kind of you know, get towards question section of things. We've got a couple of questions coming in, but please, if you would like to ask a question of any or all of our panel, do please pop them into um, the Q&A box. Um, we have questions coming in about food trends um, and do food trends like plant-based eating and artisan cold brew coffee, things like that, affect local food culture? Um, does anyone feel they'd like to answer that? I'd like to say, I, I, you know, I, I find this fascinating, and I'm, I'm really, uh, I, I, I'm really amazed at the speed with which things are changing. Um, and I was astonished and also delighted to read last week or the week before that um, one of the most famous restaurants in New York, um, uh, Eleven Madison, uh, uh, was it Eleven Madison Park? And they, I think they have. Oh, a, I think so, Eleven Madison they, Park. They, yeah, they have, a, they have a branch in Claridge's in London, but the original restaurant, which was set up by Danny Meyer. Uh, and his head chef there, um, Daniel Hum, who I now think runs it. I think Daniel, um, uh, Danny Meyer's sort of withdrawn his, um, his involvement. They announced two weeks ago that they had, they had no confidence anymore in the sustainability of meat and fish. And they announced that they were going to go completely vegan. This is, this is a, it's a huge huge step for a major Michelin-starred, internationally uh, renowned restaurant to say, sorry, we're, we're, just, we're just not confident that, um, that the meat and fish industry is sustainable. We're, we're now going 100% plant-based. I mean, how brave and how astonishing is that? And I, I, just, I just think, that, you know, it's, it's one of the, it, it sort of passed without very much comment in the, in the mainstream media. Obviously, it was mentioned and commented on in, in the industry media, but it's a big, big deal, a massive deal. Russell, you've done a very nice little, excuse me, trail for um, our next edition of Borough Talks in June. I which, didn't know this. <laughs> I know, it's very good, it's very handy. Um, we are uh, attempting to uh, engage in a very positive way in the uh, meat, non-meat debate, which can become so polarised. Um, yeah. And uh, so we've got uh, Tom Hunt, who great you know, eco yeah, yeah. Um, and one of our market butchers from Northfield Farm you know really kind of trying to get into the, the sustainability, sustainability issues environmental issues and uh, the whole breadth of it really around the meat non-meat so that's that's in June for anyone watching who would like to um, see that uh, for the next do you think session. sorry Angela do you, do you think yeah. this has been partly um, uh, accelerated by cowspiracy and seaspiracy those two documentaries on Netflix I'm yeah. sure you've watched 
I, yeah. I have too. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, and I think you know, it's been the sort of you know, argument, which we, which I think it shouldn't be an argument, has been kind of you know, bubbling around for so many years now, and I think is you know, kind of reaching a, it, its sort of axis point, and I think it'd be really interesting to delve into, and I'm really looking forward to you know, having that conversation. Yeah. Um, just going to leave think on that point. Yeah. Just quickly, I think. Um, yeah, as well as uh, Russell is quite right to talk about Eleven Madison Park, and similarly, Epicurious, which is a big Condé Nast kind of digital publication, also said I think around that same week that they weren't publishing any more beef recipes, which again in the US is a really huge thing. Um, and then with Biden as well, kind of coming out. I mean, you know, Fox News were running all these headlines about how Biden's banning beef because he suggested that Americans need to reduce their, their you know, the amount of beef that they eat. And he'd kind of calculated that it was one beef burger a month. But anyway, whatever. I think there's, there's really interesting debates going on there. But if you look at some of the regions that I've kind of researched or, or uh, certainly shared recipes from, what I think is really interesting is that so many of those traditional food cultures are quite vegetable forward or plant-based anyway. You know, whenever people, you know, when I told people I was doing a book on Palestinian food, they were like, oh my God, you must have eaten so much lamb. You know, that is like the, 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 the first kind of headline point. Well, I did eat a bit of lamb, but actually, you know, in whole places like the Galilee, where um, so much of the, of the of, of just traditional recipes are, are, are plant-based, whether that's a beautiful braised okra stew or, you know, incredible, um, yeah, there's so many incredible vegetables there, like stuffed peppers, and stuffed aubergines so I think on the one hand I think definitely in the west we can see this as like a food trend in response to you know 60 years of very intense you know industrialization but if you look at more traditional food cultures I think you know it's in, in a historical view as to how we've eaten you know actually the amount of you know, meat and dairy is, is a relatively new phenomenon completely tied into industrialization um, and yeah, is it a food trend? Is it a not? Are we potentially going back to how we've just eaten for a lot of, of human history with, with you know, meat and dairy being, um, uh, again, a seasoning? I mean, the way my mum always describes it, when they would make a big stew, it would be just using a chunk of meat to, to flavour the, the, the broth of a, of, a, of a bean dish or a vegetable-based stew and, um, you know, getting all the flavour from the bones that you're putting in. And instead of what we do now, which is, you know, have portions of meat in a stew that we eat. It was about what people could afford as well, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. the majority of the population ate meat as a luxury and ate vegetables and grains. Uh, the first time I travelled, um, I was in Turkey for three months. That was the first time I went overseas from Australia. And I was vegetarian, not vegan, but vegetarian. And I never had trouble finding things to eat. We, we Turkey is a brilliant months. place for people who are vegetarian. And I think if people just don't associate it with that because we're just, you know, but it, it absolutely but is. It's true of Italy. It's true of Greece. It's true of Asia. It's true of almost anywhere. It's, you're right. In, it, in Italy, you know, most of, the, most of the celebrated peasant dishes don't involve meat at all because meat is too expensive. You know, uh, uh, there are, you know, there are, uh, there are examples all over the 20 regions of, of, of Italy where meat substitutes are quite often referred to as car carne de poveri. So chick chickpeas, <laughs> chickpeas are known, uh, uh, you know, from, from the south to the north as the, as the uh, sort of pauper's, pauper's meat, because it's a, a, an easy and inexpensive way to get protein. Um, 
And, and she hasn't yeah. said they, they use meat as seasoning. If they use meat at yeah. all, there's a piece of it, but it's there to flavour the sauce. I love that idea. Just it's a flavouring rather than having to uh, having to have big chunks of flesh mm. in your in your meal. Um, it's enough to have the flavour of the bones and the um, and the meat uh, in the stock. Jasmine, I know you have to go, so I'm going to um, and Russell for a few more minutes if you guys don't mind. But I'm going to bid let, bid you farewell, Jasmine. Lovely to see you again, Angela. Lovely to meet you online, Russell and Roberta. Bye, Jasmine. Catch up in person one day. All right, bye. Bye. Roberta and Russell, just going to probe into a couple more things before we disappear. A couple more questions coming in. Um, So we've been talking a lot about travelling to places, but to what extent can we travel through food without actually going there so I suppose I'm thinking about ingredients coming to different places thinking about restaurants in one place which evoke very much the food of a different country or region. Roberta would you like to get into thinking about traveling through food without actually traveling somewhere? Certainly well as I said in Sydney we can do it very easily and um, we can we can pretty much dine around the world with authentic ingredients, both imported and things that are grown here. So um, I grew up in Sydney um, in the 1970s when things like eggplant and capsicum were considered exotic. Even fresh asparagus was exotic back then. And we certainly didn't put oil on our salads. That was just disgusting. Um, So we've come a long, long way since then. And now most of the produce is grown here. Our chefs have access to it things are imported, um, and more and more home cooks are cooking with those ingredients. So I think in Australia, we travel very widely through our palates. And we have fabulous cookbooks, of course, that teach us the history and the culture. We have cooking classes, which I used to facilitate, and chefs that are very keen to educate people about the cuisine of their homeland. So we can travel very well and very inexpensively by staying in Sydney. Russell? I would agree. I think, you know, the the world is, uh, and I'm very pleased that this has happened and and this is the case. The world is a much smaller place than it's ever been Um, because, uh, you know, we we are able to appreciate other cultures. We're able to appreciate other uh, other cuisines. Um, I was asked recently by a journalist, um, because my career in food has always um, gravitated towards Italy. But I'm, uh, I'm a Brit. I, I was born in London. Um, you know, I, I don't, as far as I know, I don't have any Italian genes in my makeup and DNA. And the journalist asked me about cultural appropriation. And I said, dude, come on, you know, we are, we're Europeans, we're citizens of the world. There's no such thing. I, I don't think there's no such thing as cultural appropriation. If, you know, if, if we are there to enjoy everything that the world has to offer, because we're, we're part of the world, you know, we're not individual citizens of an individual nation or country. I think we're, you know, we're, we're citizens of the planet. So in, ter- in terms of traveling and in terms of, you know, enjoying the food of other cultures and other countries and so on and so forth, you know, we, we have more than enough cookbooks to help us on that way. We have more than enough dishes and restaurants and um, uh, and uh, uh, champions and exponents of, of you know various cultures and cuisines. And I, you know, I, I just I just think uh, me personally, but but us generally, I think we're very lucky 
to have such a, an international um, connection with food, no matter where we are in the world, whether it's Sydney, um, Roberta, whether, you know, whether it's London, Angela, whether it's you know Venice, where I am at the moment, you know, you can eat, you can eat the the cooking of any culture wherever you are. I just think that's that's a wonderful thing. You know, imagine we, we, the last. We, imagine, we are we are we are citizens of the world. Imagine the last year if we hadn't been able to you know enjoy ingredients and cuisines in our hometown that are from all over the place. So, do I enjoy Brindisi ingredients even more at the moment because I've not been able to go to Andalusia, which I go to a lot and love? You know, I think I think yes, I have, and so I think you know, it's been a wonderful thing over the last little while to be able to you know, embrace in our immediate communities foods of different places. But as things are opening up my last question to you both is where are you most looking forward to going to and what will you be eating there what are you most looking forward to eating when you next can travel outside of where you are and, and Russell you're not allowed to choose anywhere in Venice so you can't, you can't <laughs> London or Venice and Roberta you can't choose Sydney obviously I want to well, go to Sydney uh, Roberta <laughs> good Good. Well, I'll have the list ready for you. You just let me know when you're coming down, Russell, because I'm... I was going to say, I said to you off air before we started, it's either Amalfi or Venice for me, but yeah. I think after listening to you this, this evening, it's got to be Venice. Okay. And what am I going to eat? I'm going to go out to Il Gatonero out at Morano. Oh and um, beautiful seafood out of the lagoon. Razor clams, Absolutely. because we don't get razor clams in Sydney. Well, the, you do, do you not? What? No. That's incredible. So, well, the, the razor clams you get in Venice are tiny. They're like this. The razor clams we have in the UK are huge. Um, but, ah. yeah, like cape lunghe, they call them here. Um, uh, um, sort of long, long muscle, uh, long um, clams, I think is the translation. Absolutely. One of my favorite things in the world. Lots of garlic, parsley, salt, and olive oil. Nothing better. But and then I'm I definitely want, going want, back to Almerca for one of those little paninis and some red wine at 8 a.m. So, so I'll see you in Venice for a sandwich and a glass of wine in the morning at Almerca. And you'll see me in, in, um, in Sydney <laughs> for wherever you want to take me. Okay, what's the deal? Russell, I'm not letting you wriggle off the hook with this. I want to know somewhere that you have been to that you know that you are lusting after going back there and eating something there. Oh wow! I um I, I, I struggle um sometimes with my family when it comes to holidays. They they never agree with my destination choices. They, they they sort of do eventually, but I've been trying for several years to get them to go back to Greece. I I, I have a connection with, um to Greece that goes back to my um, pre-student days. Um, I lived on the island of Eos in the in the Kikladis for about 10 or 11 months and absolutely loved it. And I've always wanted to go back and I've always tried to convince my family to come back with me and they've always said no. So that I think is a, is a new ambition. I want, I want to go back to the to Kikladis, um, Paros, Naxos, Eos, Mykonos, Thera, uh, Santorini. I don't care actually, I'll go anywhere because the food in that part of Greece is you know, it is whatever you find in the sea, literally two meters away from where you're sitting. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love that. I love that connection with, um, you know, with, with the ocean and with the food of the ocean. It's a very simple, a very simple 
local sea bream on a barbecue with lots of salt and a big wedge of lemon and a very, very cold mythos beer. <laughs> I think that is the perfect way to round off this. Now, that, now that's all that any of us want to possibly have for our lunch or supper in Roberta's case. Um, huge thanks, Russell and Roberta, for joining us for this. It's been an absolute joy to chat with you both. Um, I'm sure our audience have really enjoyed it too. And as previously mentioned, um, we are back in June for our talks talking about the, the meat, non-meat um, debate and a very positive conversation with Tom Hunt and uh one of the butchers from borough markets northfield farm um but for now thank you again roberta russell and yasmin um thank you all for watching and farewell from uh borough talks <laughs>